Welcome to Grand Bible Chapel. Let's all stand together and worship. The weapon may be formed, but it won't prosper. When the darkness falls, it won't prevail. Cause the God I serve knows only how to triumph. My God will never fail. Oh, my God will never fail. I'm gonna see a victory. I'm gonna see a victory for the
Bible Chapel. Welcome to church. Please join me as we uh, just celebrate God's word from Psalms. David says, come, let us joyfully shout to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout triumphantly to him in song. For the Lord is a great God, a great King above all gods. The depths of the earth are in his hand and the mountain peaks are his. The sea is his, he made it. His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep under his care. Let's continue worshiping together. Savior, we are alive for your praise. 
before you this morning in a spirit of worship. We praise you for who you are, for who you have shown yourself to be. We praise you for your mercy, your compassion toward us sinners, for your grace. Father, we humbly come before you this morning and long for your coming again. We long for a day when all of our voices will be raised up to you in absolute unison praising you and worshiping you. A day when sin shall be no more, when rebellion will not exist within our hearts. We ask that your will be done in our lives, in our towns, in our state, in our nation, and in this world, Lord. And we thank you for making us your hands and feet, for preparing us for good works that glorify your name. Lord, there are so many needs among us and we ask for your mercy in those. We ask that we can rest in you, that we can lay all our cares and concerns at your feet. Father, as the people of God called to trust in you and be obedient to you, Lord, we recognize that we have fallen short. Where we have fallen short, whether by weakness or by willfulness, please forgive us. And where we are weak and willful, Lord, protect us from the temptations before us to act against your will. Father, your word says that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And your word also says that apart from me, we can do nothing. 
we humbly come before you this morning and recognize our utter dependence upon you, Lord. Father, you are our rock. Our salvation is found in you alone, Christ Jesus. We lift you up. We praise your holy name. And all God's people said, amen. Good morning. I'm Amber Cameron. I'm the Women's Ministry Director here at GBC, and I am so excited to be sharing with you some things that are gonna be launching next month, specifically Bible study and groups. Um, last week, Zach Stevens shared at the beginning of his message that one of the most important values we have here at GBC is a devotion to God's Word. We want to be a people who are dedicated to learning God's Word and letting it shape us. And we believe one of the most powerful ways that we can do that is through the context of community, where we can grow in scripture and we can help sharpen one another. And that's why I'm so excited to be sharing with you three opportunities for us to be able to dive in together and learn together. The first is men and women's Bible study. They will be starting, oh, I think like, the week after, I guess a week from Monday. And so we are gonna have um, in-person and Zoom options available. The women are going to start with the book of Jude and the men are going to be studying the life of Abraham. And while we are going to be starting with different things, we're going to be ending with the same thing. In the spring, both men and women will be studying Titus. And we are really excited about this because it isn't just about what the men are studying or about what the women are studying, but about what we are studying together. Now, if you're more interested in learning about the big picture of God's plan and story, we are going to spend 14 weeks through a Zoom study on Sundays looking at the New Testament using the gospel foundations from the Gospel Project. Or maybe you want to know more about the life of Jesus. The first several weeks of this study is going to be looking at his life through seven, several different angles, and this would be a wonderful place to start. And finally, we don't just want God's word to shape our lives, we want it to shape our marriages. So we are going to offer a study on Sundays at 9 a.m. called Fierce Marriage. So if you have a marriage that's hurting, you can pursue God's word for healing. If you have a marriage that is good, you can look to God's word for it to be even better. And if you have a marriage that is great, we want you to be part of this study so that your wisdom and your insight can help sharpen others as you all gather together and see what God's word has to say about marriage. So if you are interested in any of these or if you would like more information, you can access that on our GBC website at grottenbiblechapel.org. Just scroll down to the Join a Group button and you can find all the information that you need there. So with that, I would like to invite you all to stand up, greet one another in a socially responsible way, maybe send somebody a text and let them know that you're thinking about them.
nothing has changed. I want to encourage you this morning that nothing has changed. Now you're of course thinking, in what context is he talking about? I feel like over this last year, everything has changed. Things political, things personal, things pandemical. I guess that doesn't really work. But I want to encourage you this morning, nothing has changed. Jesus has not changed. Peter tells us Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The gospel has not changed. The message of God's redemptive work through his love and in sending his son to die for us, that message has not changed. Our mission has not changed. To be the hands and feet of Jesus to the hurting and the broken, to bring that message of redemptive hope to a world that is headed for a lost eternity apart from God. Our mission has not changed. And finally, as Amber even referred to just a moment ago, the word of God, the Bible, has not changed. I really want us to think about this for a minute, that given all the circumstances of our world right now, where it seems like everything is in flux, that these things haven't changed in the last year. Jesus hasn't changed. The gospel hasn't changed. Our mission has not changed. And his word has not changed. And just to echo what Amber said this morning, we believe here that at Crown Bible Chapel that the Word of God, the Bible, is authoritative to teach us about who God is, who we are, and what that means for our lives. His, his Word is authoritative to speak into my life, to direct the affairs of my life and that of our lives collectively as a church. Now, true confession, I don't live according to the authority of God's Word often in my own life. I just don't. I'm not always obedient. At times when life uh, is, for whatever reason, either things going on in my own life or, or outside, at times I rely on my own circumstances or my own finite understanding, and I don't retreat to God's word. I don't go back to his word to see what he has to say about it or how his word frames how I ought to respond. My behavior does not always line up with God's word. How I react and respond to the situations of life, the things that I allow to go on in my mind, the captive thoughts that I don't take captive to his word. And so we need this morning, don't we? I know that I do. We need to be reminded that God's word is authoritative into my life. We need to let it speak into our lives this morning. In fact, this morning's message is packed with scripture. And we're going to be looking at a, a lot of, of God's word together. Really excited. And what Amber was sharing this morning, I love the fact that just beginning in about a week, that our, our church community, many of us in this congregation, are going to be soaking and saturating ourselves in the word of God and asking him to, to do his work in us through his word. You know, this morning, we need a message about the idea of how we view life. Because you know, speaking for myself, and I think probably many of us, that we do tend to view social issues and the political situation of our climate, the pandemic that we're going through, all of these things through the lens of our little world and our understanding. We tend to respond to things like unrest or strained relationships in our friendships or in our family through our own understanding and our own perspective and our own little way of, of interpreting life, our own circumstances. I tend to respond to the sin in my life through my own understanding, and I begin to make justifications for my own behaviors, my own temptations, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What we're going to see this morning in the Gospel of John is that John invites us to see that Jesus invites us 
to view and respond to life in light of his majesty. We said at the beginning of the year that our word for the year was perspective. And we will see a lot of that this morning. But I think that that's probably kind of a lofty idea that's hard to get your head around. If our big point is that I tend to live life in light of my own circumstances and understanding, but Jesus invites me to live life in view of his majesty, what does that really mean? How can we kind of put our minds or wrap our minds around it? Well, Peter, in his letter, in his first letter, chapter two, he gives us this visual. So I want to sort of capture Peter's language here. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You were wondering this morning, I'm sure, what's the deal with the rock? Peter says the stone that that builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's speaking about Jesus and a stone to make men stumble and a rock that we trip over. So Peter says. And so this morning, I just want to give us the picture of, you know, if life is a storm, which it certainly has felt that way, over the last year or so, uh, but generally storms uh, come and go out of our lives in any year. That when I live life according to my own circumstances and in view of my own wisdom and understanding, it's like I'm standing in the torrent of a wild river in the midst of a storm. And the circumstances of life are the things that have captured my attention. And my own response and understanding to it is what I'm relying on. And Jesus is someone I stumble over, I trip over. He's, He's an incidental part of my life. What Peter is saying is that when I view life through the majesty of Jesus Christ, he becomes a cornerstone. A cornerstone is something that is a stone that forms the very foundation of the foundation. It's a stone that you can build the building on. It's a stone that we can metaphorically build our lives around. So I invite you this morning to consider Are you living life in view of your own circumstances and being distracted by all that's going on either in here or out there? Has Jesus become something that you trip over? Or are you standing on him? Are you viewing and living life in light of his majesty? And we're going to get into a little bit more specifically what that means. We're back in John's gospel this morning. And to form the the biggest chunks of outline here so you can understand a little bit of John's structure in his gospel, there are really four big pieces. There's the prologue, which is a little less than a chapter of John's gospel. And from the prologue, expands and expounds the entire rest of the gospel of John that he writes. This morning, we're coming to a, this is a pivot morning. We're coming to a, a, a sermon that will pivot from this week to next, from Jesus' public ministry to the world, that we conclude this morning to his private ministry, to his own, that we begin next week, over the next several weeks. And then when we get to the spring, we will look at his passion narrative, his burial, uh, his death, burial, and and resurrection. But we're at the end of, of chapter 12 this morning. We're in the conclusion to Jesus' public ministry. And John's gonna bring it to a close. And then we'll hear the final words of Jesus to the crowds. As we prepare to do that, will you pray with me as we look at God's word? Oh God, we come before you this morning and it's pretty quickly that we can arrive at the conclusion that we tend to respond to life from our own resources, so to speak. God, often we respond to your word, what we read in your word from our own resources. Lord, we need a new vision of your majesty. Lord, would you you help us this morning, even as we've sung, to be dependent on you, to learn from you this morning. God, I ask for clarity 
that what comes from your gospel, from the gospel of John this morning, would apply deeply into our own hearts by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are indeed in John's gospel. Last week, our associate pastor, Zach Stevens, uh, shared with us from the passage where Jesus reveals that he is going to be crucified. He predicts his crucifixion. And now John moves on to the next scene, and he's, he's wrapping up Jesus' public ministry. Listen to how he begins. It's very interesting. He says, even though he, Jesus, had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. Kind of a despairing verse at a certain level. But he goes on, he says, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, who said, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is why they were unable to believe it, because Isaiah also said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Now this is a challenging verse. And I'm sure it leaves you reeling with some significant questions this morning. He goes on, he says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke about him. Nevertheless, many did believe in him, even among the rulers. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, so that they would not be banned from the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men or human praise more than the praise of God. So John is wrapping up the ministry, the public ministry of Jesus to the world. And he says, you know what, in spite of all the miracles that Jesus had done, many didn't believe. There was a response of unbelief. And you have to ask this morning, you have to be thinking, at least I was as I read this, well, wait a minute. If they saw Jesus do these miracles physically, he was there in their presence and they didn't believe, what hope is there for anybody else? How do we end up at a place of genuine belief? And we're going to try to answer those questions this morning. But as you get into the Isaiah passages that he quotes, where he says, Lord, who's believed our message? Or he says, God himself has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts that they wouldn't believe and I would turn and heal them. All of a sudden he starts saying, well, is there futility in the gospel then? Is there futility in a message that Jesus himself brings about the kingdom and the people don't respond? What chance do I have to win anybody to Christ? What is God really trying to teach us here? And why does John quote these passages? In many ways, this passage fulfills uh, what John says in the prologue, what he hints at in chapter 1, verse 11, where he says that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Now remember, John's thesis is to make Jesus known that we might believe and have eternal life. And so in, in many ways, in, in the real time in which John writes this, as Jesus is uh, going about his public ministry, the Jews kind of had to reject Jesus as the Messiah, prophetically speaking, because it's their rejection of the Messiah that moves things toward Jesus' passion on the cross, that makes salvation available to all people, to all nations, which Isaiah also talks about. And that would bring into mind several other questions, but for now we'll, we'll leave it there. And, and John brings in, he does, he quotes Isaiah, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 53, and he quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. Isaiah chapter 53, John quotes and essentially implicates Jesus as the servant spoken of in Isaiah 53, which begins, to whom has, we been, has you been revealed? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then there's that very familiar verse in verse 5 that he was bruised for our transgressions. He was wounded for our iniquities. A picture of the cross of Christ. John is saying Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. 
But it's much more than that. John is also saying that to really understand Jesus, we need to look at prophecies about the Messiah, about the Savior, about the Deliverer. It tells us who he is. And so he's connecting Jesus to these prophetic messianic passages. But it also says something about the nature of this rejection. After all these miracles that Jesus has done, that the people rejected him, and John's saying, nothing's really changed. That the, the rejection that Isaiah faced at his message... If you read the entirety of Isaiah 6, Isaiah is given this call to preach and he's told ahead of time, you're going to preach and they're not going to believe. And John's saying that's not unique to just the personal ministry of, of Isaiah. That response of unbelief was perpetuated to the next prophet and the next prophet and the next prophet all the way to, as F.F. F. Bruce says it, the unreceptive hearing given to him of whom all the prophets spoke of Jesus, even with the demonstration of miracles. In other words, John's talking about something that's a human issue. Sin, rebellion, and rejection of the very message, the very person that God sends. And then John quotes this scripture from Isaiah 6.10. He has blinded their eyes. He has hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes, understand with their hearts, turn, and I would heal them. It's okay to wrestle with this scripture, but we do so sort of applying our big point here this morning. We do so reminding ourselves that I even respond to who God says he is often out of my own finite understanding and my own sort of worldview. But we need to respond to the word of God and what it says about who God is and who we are in view of the majesty of who God says he is. So what does this scripture mean? It has something to say about the hardness of the human heart and it, the sovereignty of God. Five times this verse in, in its entirety or in part is quoted in the New Testament. Twice in uh, Matthew and Mark, and then Paul quotes it twice in Acts and in Romans 11. And it's this idea again that we stand on the idea of Jesus' majesty. We don't respond to what we read in the word of God or the circumstances of life according to our own wisdom, according to our own circumstances. So what does Paul mean here? Uh, encourage you, if you have the time to read Romans 9 through 11, we're going to look just at Romans 9. And before Paul quotes this scripture in Romans 11, he says this first. He asks the question we've hinted at with the, this question about the futility of the gospel. Well, Paul says this in verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 14. What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So that it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very reason. For what reason, Paul? So that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. He hardens whom he wants to harden. So Paul says, and he uses Pharaoh as an Old Testament character for instance, that God elevates Pharaoh as an instrument uh, uh, to make his power known through the deliverance of God's people from Egypt and his name proclaimed among the nations. And that Pharaoh is chosen and his heart is hardened to such a purpose. 
And if you're, if you're honest, or at least as I've wrestled with this, I read that and I go, Paul, I, I don't know that you answered the question or I don't know that you changed the question by giving that as, a, as an example. Well, perhaps the biggest hint we get is by going back to John's gospel first and then to the original context in Isaiah's vision. Because here's the deal. That God's sovereignty over the hardening of hearts, the blinding of eyes, so on and so forth, only makes sense when we see him for who he says he is in the scripture, not who I make him to be. And there's a little, little verse in John 12 that we kind of read past that is, is the key passage. It's the key verse in our passage this morning. It is the verse that, that I would submit has the most theological weight to it in terms of knowing who Jesus is and what John is talking about and why he would quote this verse and how we can understand the heart of God and the sovereignty of God and the hardness of the human heart. It says this, and it's verse 41, and this is where we're hanging our hat for a little while here. John 12, 41, John says this, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke about him. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke about him. Whose glory? Isaiah, and we'll look at it in a moment, is given a vision of the majesty of God on high in his throne. And John says, if we connect the the pronouns, we follow them along, he begins by saying, even though he performed all these miracles, who's the he? Jesus. Even though Jesus performed all these miracles, they didn't believe. And then he comes down to verse 4, he quotes Isaiah. He says, he has blinded the eyes of unbelievers, he has high, hardened their hearts. The pronouns that are, that are referenced there are not, have not changed. He's still talking about Jesus. And then he slams this verse down and says, Isaiah writes this, he says this, because he saw his. In other words, Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. It is when Isaiah sees the glory of Christ that everything comes into alignment and perspective, that his finite understanding is just blown away. But what John is saying in the text here clearly is that Jesus is God Almighty on the throne. We've studied this passage in Isaiah 6 before. Let's look at it real quickly. Isaiah 6, we'll just look at the first four verses. It's a short chapter, I think 13 verses. I encourage you to read it on your own. But Isaiah begins this way. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne in the hem of his robe. Some of your versions will say the train of his robe filled the temple. And seraphim, which are angelic creatures, were standing above him, and each had six wings. With two they covered their eyes, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And they called out one to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the Lord God of armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the doorways shook with their voices. And he goes on, he describes the temple being filled with smoke and thunder. Isaiah is given a a profound image of of the majesty of God. And as we referenced several years ago when we preached through this passage, it's fascinating that the temple itself, the foundations of the doorposts of the temple shook. But God's people in the time of Isaiah, God's people at the time of John, even though he performed many miracles, I would submit to you often myself and God's people now, were unmoved even as the temple shook. But Isaiah is given a vision of God himself. 
And that vision, John says, is of Jesus. Don't miss this. What John is saying is the vision of Isaiah of God Almighty on the throne is Jesus Christ himself. And when he sees Christ, and as John, through the prophecy quoted here, sees Christ again through this lens, all of a sudden the sovereignty of God and the hardness of hearts of of mankind comes into perspective. It's as if like Job, he says, who am I? He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. As he says to Moses, he will harden whom he will harden. This perspective shift happens all through the Bible. It happens to the psalmist. In Psalm 73, the psalmist comes to God through his his writing and it's this lament, this venting session, this frustration over the prosperity of the wicked on this planet. And he writes and he writes and he writes. He comes to verse 17 at the end and he says, until I entered the sanctuary of the Lord. He is sovereign. Jesus said that both Abraham and Moses testified about him as God Almighty. In John 8, we looked at this a while back. Jesus says to the Jewish leaders, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. It's as if God had given Abraham a vision of Christ to come at his time. In John 5, he speaks to the, to the Jewish leaders about Moses. John 5, it says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Why? Jesus says, because Moses wrote about me. Jesus is claiming to be God Almighty. What about the witness of the New Testament? Paul in his great Christological text in Colossians chapter 2 says, In him, in Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily in Christ. He is God. Perhaps the most both complete and concise version in the New Testament comes in Hebrews chapter 1. Some of you studied this last fall. It says the sun is the radiance of God's glory. We've talked about glory, God's glory, a couple times this year already. And the exact representation, the exact expression of his nature, of the nature of God, sustaining all things by the power of his word. Hebrews goes on to say that after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This morning, perhaps you're saying, yeah, okay, that's, I get that. But God, what about the status of our world? God, what about what's going on in my marriage right now? God, what about my kids that are really, really struggling? Lord, when can I stop wearing this dumb mask? (laughs) That's a lot of affirmation on that one. And I encourage you with Daniel chapter 2, which also speaks of Jesus, says that he changes times and seasons. He changes times and seasons, including a season of illness and pandemic. That he deposes or removes kings and he establishes kings. Some of you have a lot of angst and it's still kind of hanging with you and just anxiety and, and anger and stress over the last four years administration. And for others of you, it's the exact opposite. You're all kinds of hung up on this administration. And what the scripture says is we're focused on the wrong administration. He sets up and tears down kings. He changes times and seasons. So how do we live 
not viewing our lives and responding to life, responding to our understanding of scripture through our own circumstances, our own finite understanding. How do we live in view of the majesty of God? How do we do that? Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up on his throne with the angels in worship of him. And John says, he saw Christ. Hebrews says that after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the majesty on high, at the right hand. What happens in between these two cataclysmic events is the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ where Jesus hangs and his blood is shed to pay for your sin, to provide you and me with forgiveness of sins. And then he miraculously, three days later, rises from the dead to new life, giving us life. Yes, for this life, but for life eternal as well. The cross of Christ is the most significant event and moment of majesty in all of scripture. As the hymn says, majesty, worship his majesty, Jesus who died, now glorified, King of all kings. We understand and comprehend the sovereignty of God when we view who God is, who we are, and how we are to live in view of the majesty of Christ. That brings us to the very words of Jesus himself at the end of the passage. And this is Jesus' last appeal, as it were. And you'll note that these words are very familiar from all the scripture that we've looked at in John's gospel to this point. And I love that John says that Jesus cried out. He shouts to the crowd, as it were, and he says this. The one who believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And the one who sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and doesn't receive my sayings has this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command to say everything I have said. I know that his command is eternal life, so the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. In this little passage, Jesus is making a final appeal to those who've been listening. It's a thematic restatement of the things that he's already talked about. I and the Father are one, that I speak as the Father instructs me to speak. Light and darkness, judgment to come, the judgment of of my word and my teaching, the command that God has given me to give you. Again, it's a thematic restatement of sorts. And so Jesus responds with obedience to the command that God has given him, but there's a command by extension to you and me. To believe the message of the Son. Because to believe the message of the Son is to obey the command of the Father is to have eternal life. That's what Jesus is saying. Have you believed this morning? I wonder where you are in your belief in Christ this morning. And I'm talking to those who don't know Jesus yet, but I'm also talking to those of us who are walking with him from the standpoint of our sanctification as we walk with Jesus. 
renewing our faith day by day, receiving those new morning mercies as it were. Jesus invites us to live in light of his majesty. And within this little passage that that seems to have the undertones of judgment, because it does, Jesus gives this, uh, it is layered with hope. There's the implicit nature of the heart of God within it. He says this in verse 46, he says, everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness, for I have come to save the world. Brothers and sisters, Jesus came to bring you out of your darkness. And even as Christians, we need that reminder. But if you don't know where you stand with Jesus today, or you know that you're not a Christian, you desperately need this message. Paul says it this way. He says, for God who set light shine out of the darkness, made his light to shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Again, Christ's majesty living in light of his majesty. You see, we all have to face what Merrill Tenney called the spiritual crisis of being confronted with Christ. And the response to the crisis of being confronted with who the Bible says Jesus is, is only resolved through personal decision. Now you say, wait a minute, that Isaiah scripture, the Lord hardens and shows compassion, absolutely. Yet as you hear these words this morning, As the Spirit of God speaks to you through his word, you and I have a responsibility to respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and what he says. We didn't speak about it at any kind of length, but verses 42 and 43, John says that nevertheless there was belief, right? Many believed, even among the rulers they believed, but they were afraid to confess their belief because they're afraid of the Pharisees and they didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. I'm paraphrasing a little bit here because... They love the praise of men rather than the praise of God. It's as if they have a a meager belief, maybe this kind of belief. Maybe that describes you this morning. They're kind of caught in the torrent, not fully committed. You see, what Jesus gives in this final appeal before he will turn his attention to those who are his followers in a a more private way is is a final appeal. It's it's as if it's a, not to be cheesy, but it's a limited time offer. And it's a limited time offer not only on on the eschatology of the fact that Jesus is going to come again and put everything to right and come back as a judge, but in the immediate, based on the response of our own hearts. So we come back to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, God tells Moses twice in the early chapters of Exodus, I'm going to harden the heart of Pharaoh and use him as my instrument to make my power made known as I deliver you people, but also to make my name be proclaimed in the nations. That's his intent and purpose. But the miracles of the 10 plagues in Pharaoh's presence are also a note of grace. And the scripture says in the first five miracles or so, it says this, it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Or the heart of Pharaoh was hard toward God. But then in the latter plagues, the text says this, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. We see this in Romans 1, that when people pursue the indulgence of sin to the point of sexual perversion, at, po- at some point in, in Romans, God says at some point in that continuum, Verse 24, 26, and 28 all say that God gave them over to their desires. And so I appeal with you from Joshua 24 to choose this day whom you will serve. 
the gods of our culture today in 2021, the God of self or the majesty of Christ exalted on high in his cross, glorified. Or Psalm 95, which is also quoted in Hebrews chapter 3. Today, if you hear his voice, do not, I plead with you, do not harden your heart as Pharaoh did. And I mean that now. Today, brothers and sisters at home or in this room, if you hear the Holy Spirit's sweet, soft whisper convicting you of the truth of the gospel of Christ crucified, don't harden your hearts. Respond in kind and in faith and say, Jesus, I receive what you did for me on the cross on my behalf. Jesus, I've been walking with you a long time and I've become distracted. I've stepped off the foundation of, of looking for you, uh, to you as my guide and upholding your majesty as the lens through which I'm going to live all of my life. But Paul says today, now is the day of salvation that we would view things through the majesty of Christ. Nothing has changed. Jesus is the same. The gospel is the same. Our mission is the same. In God's word, the Bible has not changed. So we want to end this morning by singing this song that we're going to sing as sort of a prayer. Now, we sing a lot of songs here at GBC in different categories. Sometimes we sing songs that are kind of about us, but inviting God to minister to us and to speak to us and that we would see him. And there's nothing wrong with that. Many, many of the Psalms, even Psalm 73 that we loosely reference, is a psalm mostly about the psalmist until the end. But we also sing songs where we simply extol him for who he is. And there is a song that was sung that we referenced this morning in Isaiah 6, talked about in the 7th century BC, but in time immemorial, that is sung, as we know from Revelation chapter 4, into eternity, even today, as we are here in this room or here in our living rooms or here at home. It's a song that says, holy, holy, holy. Stand and sing together.
Praise God. Please uh, pray with me, GBC. Father, would you rest in our hearts today? Would you give us the courage to lay at the feet of your cross, Lord, all of our cares, Lord, all of our concerns, and to see this world through the perspective of your eyes, Lord. See it through a kingdom perspective. So that our love, Lord, our love and our, 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 the good works that you've prepared us for, Lord, can be the salt of the earth, can be the light uh, that shines and draws people to you, and so that our worship can be a pleasing aroma to your ears, Father. We thank you for this day. We thank you for all the blessings that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. GBC, my name is uh, Jason. I'm on the pastoral staff here. If you're new here at GBC, uh, that was Gary, our lead pastor who spoke today. We would love to get you get to know you. Uh, there's a welcome center right through those doors. If you would sign up uh, and let us know who you are, we'll get in touch with you. We also have a welcome aboard class starting on February 7th. It's our first one in almost a year. Pretty cool. And also small groups will start up next week. So if you want to sign up for small groups, do so because they're filling up fast. And with that, GBC, have a great Sunday. Thank you so much for being here.